Our Father, as we come to your word today, we come as a people who are humble because we recognize our need for grace. And as we recognize our need for grace, we are also hungry. Hungry for your word, hungry for the nourishment that only Christ can provide through the Spirit working in us. And so we ask, most gracious Father, that you would bless this time as we come to your word, that you would bless us with understanding, that you would bless us with conviction, with rebuke if necessary, and that you would strengthen us for whatever may come, knowing that whatever may come is in your hands and by your grace. So we commit this time to learning about you and to glorifying Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible with you, we are still in Genesis chapter 41. It's kind of part two from last week. Genesis chapter 41, we're going to be looking at verses 41 to 57. You know, as somebody looks around the world today, looks around specifically our culture today, I think there is no question about the fact that immorality is rampant. And not only is it rampant, but it is increasing. And I realize that there are some people out there who would disagree, and I honestly just don't have some kind of broad, sweeping answer uh, or explanation for such people, although I have to wonder if it's because they're part of the problem. In a Gallup poll last May, uh, that was released last May, they revealed that 81% of Americans believe that the moral condition of our nation is either fair or poor. 81% of Americans believe that the moral condition in America is either fair or poor. And 77% believe that it's getting worse. In fact, the Gallup poll uh, reports, it says, uh, quote, Americans' ratings of U.S. moral values, consistently negative through the years, have slipped to their lowest point in seven years. Just interesting. It's one of those things that kind of makes you wonder, where did we go wrong? Where did this culture go wrong? You ever ask that question? What happened? I mean, once upon a time, the United States was a place where at least the majority of Americans had some type of moral compass, had some type of moral grounding. They, they went to church on Sunday mornings, not that that necessarily meant everything, but maybe it was an indication of something. And even in, in the 80s, which, don't get me wrong, I recognize, I, I realize was a very, very immoral decade, there was nevertheless a sense of moral restraint that's missing today. As certain acts of immorality that are legal today were still illegal in the 80s, acts that are now legalized. And this is one of the things that we're going to be considering today as we continue in our study of Genesis. Believe it or not, the 41st chapter of Genesis reveals some principles which help us to understand and which help to explain the moral decline of a nation, whether that's our nation or, or any nation. 
Last week we saw that Joseph got dragged out of prison and into the palace where he stood before Pharaoh. Pharaoh had had two dreams which troubled him greatly and none of his wizards or wise men could make any sense of the dreams. And so the royal cupbearer, who was always at Pharaoh's side, remembered his own time that he had spent in prison. And he remembered the day when he had had a dream and when the royal baker had had a dream and they were distraught by their dreams and Joseph was able to interpret those dreams. And so he tells Pharaoh about Joseph's ability, whether it's his or not, uh, apparently the fact that it was God that enabled him to do it may have been lost on the cupbearer, but he told Pharaoh about what Joseph had done. And so Joseph gets dragged in before Pharaoh. And you'll remember that Joseph's interpretation was that the two dreams that Pharaoh had on this night had the same message. He said they were one, that seven years of prosperity are coming, which would be followed by a seven-year severe famine. And this interpretation was not only bold, because Joseph himself may have gone the way of the baker, That is, he may have had his head taken off uh, for his doomsday prediction and the implications of it, given that Pharaoh was considered not only by himself, but by the culture, to himself be a God incarnate. So it was not only bold in the sense that he had a lot to lose by telling the truth, but it was also theocentric. That is, it was God-centered. It was God-focused. And because it was God-centered or God-focused, it was God-glorifying. God granted the interpretation of the dream. According to Joseph. That's according to Joseph. But God was also the one, we saw, who had sovereignly ordained that this famine was to come. But He also sovereignly ordained that seven years of great prosperity were coming. But Joseph gave more of an interpretation of what the dreams meant. He also gave Pharaoh the wisest counsel that Pharaoh possibly could have found in all the earth, and that is to use the seven years of prosperity in order to prepare for the seven years of severe famine by storing 20% of the annual harvest. And so the result of it all was that Pharaoh saw the Spirit of God working, recognized that it was the Spirit of God working in Joseph. And so he appointed him to be second in command of all the land of Egypt. It's just remarkable that even Pharaoh recognized that the Spirit of God was working in Joseph. So so how was Joseph to prevent this great and very abrupt, very, very sudden success from all just going to his head? Because that happens, doesn't it? Success goes to people's heads. So how does he stay humble? The answer is by maintaining the same perspective that he had had for the two years in which he was in prison. That God is good, that God is sovereign, and as such, that God would fulfill the promises in His perfect timing. But while he was in prison... He made a habit of keeping his eyes continually fixed on the Lord. And so because he was able, he taught himself to keep his eyes on the Lord in his poverty, Joseph naturally kept his eyes fixed on the Lord in his prosperity. So whatever circumstances Joseph found himself in, his perspective didn't change. 
Because his eyes stayed in the same place, fixed on the Lord. And so the prosperity didn't inflate his ego. And the same principle applies to us. And that's going to be the, the central point of our passage today. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 41, verses 41 to 57. So let's start by looking at verses 41 to 45. It says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee! And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zephenath Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. So having been appointed or, or pronounced uh, over ruler over all of Egypt, except for Pharaoh, Pharaoh adorns Joseph with three things. First, the signet ring. And the signet ring is what gives Joseph the, the authority, the, the ability to, uh, to act with the same authority that Pharaoh himself had. It would be used to press uh, the, the official seal of Pharaoh into official documents. Next, he's dressed in fine linens. And a fine linen would be a, a linen that's so light it's almost transparent. It was a garment that would have been reserved only for the very elite in their culture. Only noblemen and noble women would wear these types of garments. They were very, very expensive. Third, a gold chain was put around his neck. And this was both a reward for the faithfulness and his ability to interpret the dreams that Pharaoh had, but it's also a symbol of the great honor that's been bestowed to him. And by the way, think about this for a second. As you consider these three things with which Pharaoh adorned Joseph, doesn't it make you think of something that Jesus taught? The parable of the prodigal son. What's the, parable son, or what's the prodigal son adorned with when he comes back? Just maybe a connection there. But after this, Pharaoh uh, puts Joseph in his second chariot, and there were men who would go before him moving people out of the way and instructing everyone in his presence to bow the knee before him. This would have been kind of the, the modern-day equivalent of taking a ride in a limousine and the Secret Service or going out in front of the limo and telling people, you know, I'll hail the chief or, or something like that, getting people out of the way, making a path for him. Pharaoh then clarifies Joseph's status by proclaiming Joseph before all the counselors and all the servants. He says, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. In other words, nobody else trumps what he can do, what Joseph has the authority to do. All authority is vested in Joseph. And next, Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, Zephenath Paneah. And scholars and um, 
Commentators are kind of uncertain about what this means exactly, but there's kind of a loose consensus that it means something along the lines of God speaks and lives. God speaks and lives. It was a testimony to the work that God had done through Joseph, not only throughout his life, but also before Pharaoh. And it was also a testimony of the way that God had had used Joseph and spoke through Joseph in these specific circumstances. Finally, Pharaoh gives Joseph a wife, an Egyptian wife, a woman named Asenath, the daughter of a man named Potiphar, not to be confused with Potiphar, who we met a couple chapters ago. Potiphar, we're told, <coughs> was a priest of the Oncult. And the first thing that we need to make note of in all this is that Pharaoh had something going on in his mind here. There's a reason that he's doing everything that he's doing. Think about this. Joseph is a foreigner. And yet, he's second in command in all of Egypt. And so what Pharaoh's doing is making sure that Joseph is completely Egyptianized, if you will, in every way. In his thinking, in his clothing, in his acting, in his language, and in his marriage. Joseph was now, in Pharaoh's eyes, an Egyptian. His wife is what we would rightly call an aristocrat. Uh, Her family would have been a very highly esteemed family, very well-respected aristocratic family. In fact, history informs us that the Pharaohs themselves would often choose women from this family for their wives. The city of On would have been about 10 miles northeast of Cairo, which is widely recognized as the place, as the center of worship for the Egyptian god Re, or Ra. As the daughter of the priest, her hand wasn't going to be given to just any old Joe Schmo in marriage. But we have to understand that while all this looks like everything is going Joseph's way, it, it looks from a, a very human perspective like Joseph is just having all these blessings just heaped on him. And, and maybe to an extent he is. But he's also being greatly tempted. He's being greatly tempted. Tempted to what? Tempted to forget about the God who got him to this point. Tempted to just abandon his faith in God. Because at this point, he doesn't need God anymore from a human perspective. It's very easy to think when you're at the top of a mountain, I don't need God anymore. That's what prosperity does to a lot of people. That's the temptation. There there hasn't been a time in Joseph's very young life when his spiritual walk was at greater risk than it is right now. It was safer in prison. It was safer as a servant of Potiphar. It was safer back in Canaan where his brothers and everybody hated him and where his father rebuked him. His soul has never been in greater danger than it is at this point. As all all this power, all this prestige, all this influence and affluence, it's all just being heaped on Joseph in, in one load. And we might be inclined to think, you know, way to go, Joseph. You're finally, you know, your faithfulness is finally paying off. But if we see this for what it is, 
we have reason to be very concerned for him. See, Egypt is it's a literal place. Joseph was literally in Egypt. It's a literal culture, and yet at the same time, it's also a typology in that it represents the world. The rebels, the sinners, hatred of God, the system that opposes everything that God does. And that's exactly what Egypt was known for. And so as Joseph is becoming more and more deeply identified with Egypt, it's the same risk that you and I face, and that is that we would become worldly. That we would be so much like the world that we would be indistinguishable from them. Rather than being noticeably different because of the work that God is doing in us. And the danger is that we would forsake God, forsake His ways, and forsake His truths. But Joseph does really well. He, he doesn't let all this that's being heaped on him, all this power, he doesn't let any of it go to his head. So let's look at that, and then we're, we're going to dig into some application. Verses 46 to 49. It says, Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. There's no indication here or, or elsewhere to come that Joseph ever allowed all this power to go to his head. Instead, every indication points to the fact that Joseph remained humbly unchanged by it all. He believed what God had foretold through his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. And on the basis of that belief, he acted in accordance. And so after receiving all this power and receiving all this prestige and influence, he leaves Pharaoh's presence and he gets to work. He, get, he immediately gets to work. He travels throughout all the land of Egypt. He starts surveying all the agricultural fields and conditions, ensuring that the storage facilities were ready, that they were up and running so that they could be collecting 20% of the harvest. It was like one of those things where it's like starting today. This is what we're doing, starting today. And look what it says in verse 49. It says that the amount of grain being stored was like the sand of the sea. In other words, there's so much grain, it couldn't possibly be measured. Not by, not by what they had then. Not by the technology that they had then. It was too great to quantify. It was, it was too great to, to actually count exactly how much there was. But it was more than abundant. So people could see what a, what a great and diligent worker Joseph was. And that's a good thing, right? He's, he's, he's working hard. But what they might have missed... And what we don't want to miss is what his motivation in working hard and being a diligent worker was. His motivation for working hard and being diligent was his impenetrable faith in God's Word. 
And if there's any illustration of, of anyone in Scripture having just solid, solid faith, it's right here. It's in this passage. And I don't, I don't want you to miss it, so let me start by asking you a question. Now, if, what would you make sure that you didn't do if you knew that a famine was coming? Now, there are a lot of answers to a question like that. If you know the seven years of famine is coming and I ask you what are some things you shouldn't do, you're probably going to get 30 different answers from 30 different people. I get that. But let me narrow down your focus a little bit and ask this. If you knew that this seven years of terrible famine was coming, wouldn't you try to avoid having kids? Wouldn't you try to avoid having children? And yet, that's not even a concern for Joseph. We see a great demonstration of faith in the fact that Joseph isn't really that concerned about the famine that's coming because he's prepared in light of what God's Word has revealed to him. He trusts that the Lord is going to see him through it, and not only see him through it, but see two extra people through it. So let's look briefly at verses 50, and, uh, 50 to 52. It says, Now before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So all this happens within one year of the famine. Which is interesting. In, in one year, two sons are born to him. Now, that, that's, that's possible. Uh, it, it does happen. But do you think that this might be yet another instance of twins? There's this theme in Genesis that you see of brothers. Two, two brothers. And it starts with Cain and Abel. And you, you see sets of two brothers fairly frequently throughout the book. It's at least possible that these two brothers are twins. Right? So the, the fact that Joseph has remained God-focused and God-exalting through all of this is reflected in the names that he gives his sons. The oldest he names Manasseh, saying, For God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. So the name Manasseh actually means making or causing to forget. So in other words, Manasseh, his birth helped Joseph to think about the present and the future rather than dwelling on the things that had happened to him back in the land of Canaan. Now, there really hasn't been an indication that he's been dwelling on the things that happened to him back in his father's house. But obviously, this was all along a thorn in his side. And yet, he never sinned because of it. It never caused him to sin. It never caused him to become bitter. It was just hurtful. So Manasseh was a blessing from the Lord in that his birth turned the hardships that he had suffered in his father's house into something of a, of a distant memory. It helped him to forget about the past and to just move forward. His second son he named Ephraim, which means fertile or fruitfulness. And if you think about the timing here, that's really kind of an odd name to give a son when you know that a severe famine is coming and the ground won't be fertile and the, the, the harvest won't be fruitful. So it's kind of odd, isn't it? 
So what Joseph is reflecting on here is the fact that God is producing fruit in his life through him. It was a declaration of his great faith in God. Recognizing that everything that he has, the fruit that was being born in his life, was not of his own doing. It was God. It was all God's doing. Any good that he did, he still recognized was from God. And while we had considered the the, the great danger that his soul was in, the danger that he would be assimilated to the evil ways of Egypt and the evil ways of the world, here's a startling indication of his faith. He gives his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. So how did Joseph do, spiritually speaking, even after all this power and all this influence was placed in his hands? How did he do? He remained humbly devoted to the Lord. The character and the godliness that God had worked in him, that God had forged in him in those years when he was a slave and in those years when he was in prison remained remained unaffected in any way by Joseph's exaltation in Egypt. And I think we can all agree that it's very, very easy to submit our lives to God and to keep our minds directed toward God when our circumstances lead us to despair. When you're at the bottom of the barrel, there's only one way to look, and that's up. But when you get out of the barrel and you get up onto the mountaintops, there are lots of ways to look. Lots of ways. When you're at the mountain peak, you don't naturally look up toward God. You do when you're at the bottom of the barrel. Instead, where do you look when you're at the top of the mountain peak? Down your nose at others. And it's very easy to believe your own hype, to drink your own Kool-Aid, as they say, when you're in a really, really good and comfortable and wealthy, prosperous place in life. And you can look down on the rest of humanity with an inflated ego, with a, with a great sense of pride. See, when somebody experiences prosperity, friends, it can do great damage to their souls. It can be a terrible thing. And, and we see it happen with children of, of the rich and famous We see it happen with athletes. We see it happen with movie stars. We see it happen with CEOs and and people in other positions in in, in which a person is, is promoted, where they're exalted, and where they experience incredible prosperity. And I'm convinced that this is what we see almost everywhere we look in our country today. There's no question that America has prospered, is there? Nobody, nobody can doubt that, that this country has prospered greatly. But in that happening, even many Christians have become spiritually poor as they have materially prospered. And America isn't unique in this sense. So I'm not just saying, oh, look at, look at America, look at how bad America is. No, the, we're falling victim to the same thing that's happened to countless countries before us. 
There are plenty of European nations which have a rich, rich Christian heritage. And yet upon prospering in some material sense on a nationwide scale, they abandoned their Christian heritage. Look at, look at Scandinavia today. I mean, they are the definition of progress. They, they are as progressive as any nation, any region on the planet. Once upon a time, for example, Sweden was a deeply Christian nation. But what happened? Same thing that's happened here. They prospered greatly. And as they prospered, they abandoned the faith of their fathers. Today, only roughly 10% of Swedish residents believe that religion plays an important role in a person's life. And that's talking about just any religion in general. How many of them, what percentage of them, actually believe that the Christian faith plays an important role in a person's life? It's so few, it's practically immeasurable. And friends, we are on the same exact path. America was once a godly nation. I mean, we had Jonathan Edwards. If you've ever read Jonathan Edwards, or the, 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 some of the, the Puritans who lived in America, they were godly, godly men. They left a very godly heritage. But what happened to the Puritans? I mean, today, most people, if you were to ask what the Puritans are known for, they're known for what? Salem witch trials. Why? Because they were corrupted. They, they started out as, as a very godly people, and they got some power, they got some influence, and they abused it. They turned away from God. They were corrupted by power and prosperity. The European state, statesman uh, Alex de Tocqueville once said, quote, America is great because America is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will no longer be great. End quote. And make no mistake about it, when he talks about goodness there, he's talking about moral goodness, and we've lost it. And there's no politician, there's not even one politician who can make us great again. Because the greatness that we're seeking today is political. It's financial. It's maybe pertaining to the military. No, if we want to be great again, in any sense, we must become good again. We must recover our moral compass. And we will never do that without a sweeping revival in which Americans repent of their godlessness and their desire to be materially blessed before being spiritually submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ. Things have changed so much even in, in our lifetimes. You know, when I was growing up, I played competitive sports uh, throughout my youth. And there was not one league that I was ever involved with, and, and I was a soccer referee for years too, so I was familiar with several of the soccer leagues in Las Vegas. There was not one league that dared to have a game on Sunday. Not one. And as you look at the, the leagues today, I realize we're not in Las Vegas, this is a different place, but I have friends in Vegas who tell me that the, the, it's the same there as it is here. 
They all have games on Sundays. So nowadays, Sunday is just another, another weekend day. And we aren't taught to look at it as a day of rest from our labors and to be devoted entirely unto the Lord. No, we're taught that this is our day. We're taught that this is part of the weekend. And this is a day for us to do whatever we want. It's not the Lord's day. It's my day. Reflecting on the changes that he saw in his lifetime, one of the great preachers from yesteryear, James Montgomery Boyce, notes this. He says, quote, America has grown prosperous, and prosperity has ruined us. When we had less, Americans went to church on Sunday and generally tried to practice what was taught there. Now we have money. And he concludes by saying, we think we do not need God. So what's happened? Where did we go wrong? What's happened to our country? We prospered. And as we did, we either lost our dependence on God or we forgot about Him entirely or both. And when you turn away from God, what happens? Immorality flourishes. If, if, you, if you think about the way that a plant needs certain conditions in which to grow, necessary conditions such as nutrients in the soil and water and sunshine, etc., etc., the necessary condition for immorality to flourish is turning away from God. In the absence of submission to God, there's no other way to go. In fact, the necessary conditions for immorality to flourish include a refusal to worship or even recognize God as God. Don't be deceived into believing otherwise. And the reason for this is very simple. God is the source and the standard of all goodness. Moral goodness. God is the source and standard of all goodness. See, morality, what determines morality? It's not determined by consensus because we recognize that there have been nations and there have been pockets in the culture in which there was a consensus that something was good. And what happened? The Nazis exterminated six million Jews because they thought they were doing something good. They thought that it was morally acceptable, morally good to get rid of what they considered to be the lower elements in their society. So morality is not determined by consensus. It's not even determined by the government or the the, the courts or politicians, lawmakers. No, if anything, it's discovered. It's not determined. It's discovered by popular consensus or the courts or lawmakers. But more often in our day and age, it's not discovered. It's discarded. God Himself is the source and the standard of any and all true moral goodness. And it's very easy to prove that. If, if somebody thinks, you know, it's just, uh, you know, more morality is based on their opinion, well, okay, if my opinion is that it's okay to kick them in the shin, does that make it okay? What, what if I have a couple friends that say it's okay? Well, we've got a consensus here. What if the law says it's okay for me to do it? But doesn't make it right. So what does... Make it wrong. God. God does. God is the standard of moral goodness. 
And so if God is the moral fiber that holds the moral fabric together, what happens when a nation starts locking God out of the courtrooms and locking God out of the schoolrooms and so on and so forth? Then morality is going to be based on something other than God. And what's going to happen when morality is based on something other than God? Immorality. Immorality will flourish. Welcome to modern day America. And we haven't even come close, by the way, to reaching the end of this road of godless immorality. I mean, you can look up some of the incredible, incredible perversions that have been legalized in countries like Sweden, if you like. If, if you don't know what, what you're able to do there now, where the moral standard is, is, is drawn in the sand, see me after the service. I'll be more than happy to give you some very disgusting, very despicable examples of what is morally permissible in a country like that. And they are further ahead than we are, Sweden is. But God has shown over and over and over again throughout history that He will allow a nation to keep going down this path. He will hand them over to their sin. Romans 1. The human heart is so inclined to rebel against God and to turn from His ways by nature. But history attests to the fact that even Christians can fall, uh, can fall prey to the temptations that an inflated ego causes just as much as anybody else. Many, many hearts abandon faithfulness and forget about God upon reaching the heights of prosperity, fame, and success. As a Puritan, Cotton Mather once wrote, he said, Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. End quote. You see, friends, prosperity and power come with overwhelming temptations for great evil. And maybe this is why Scripture never, never instructs us to pray that God would bless our nation or to make prosperous our nation but it does instruct us to pray for our leaders. They've been ordained by God with a great task and great power, and along with that, incredible temptation to use that power not for good, but for promoting godless ideologies and for pursuing selfish ambition. Psalm 9-7 says this. It says, The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. A nation as a collective whole is thus more blessed to not have any prosperity, not even a drop of prosperity, and yet to remember God than it is to have even the smallest amount of prosperity and to completely abandon God altogether. A nation that forgets God is ultimately doomed. So why was Joseph any different? Why didn't he change as so many others throughout history have? Because his perspective didn't change. His perspective didn't change. The 13 years that he spent in slavery and prison taught him to see all of life through the lens of God's sovereignty. And that didn't change when he was promoted or when he was exalted to this great position in Egypt. He saw all of life through the lens of God's sovereignty and God's goodness and faithfulness unto His own. And so, therefore, he truly believed 
all along that any good that he was capable of, any good that he did, anything that he was capable of doing could only be attributed to God. The fact that he was exalted wasn't because of who he was. It was because of God. God's the one who put him there. And he recognized that. He never pursued power. Why not? Because his one pursuit in all of life is the same pursuit in all of life that you and I must embrace. And that is faithfulness unto God. Above everything else. Above family. Above job. Above everything. So what about you, friends? Are you learning to see life through this perspective? The perspective of God's sovereignty and His goodness unto His own. And do you believe that you're incapable of doing anything good apart from His work within you? The grace of God should be bearing good fruit in your lives. And so when it does, we don't have any room for taking credit for that. I mean... You might know that that's the right and biblical answer is to say, yes, I, I, I believe that. But do you really believe it? Do you really in your heart believe it? Not just up here in your mind. Because it's everywhere in God's Word that any goodness that we have can only be attributed unto God. Right? Romans chapter 3 says there is none good. And yet, part of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. So where does that come from? the grace of God working within us. That's it. And I don't mean this as a, as a blow to anybody's self-esteem unless your self-esteem is overinflated. But we all face this struggle, especially in a culture in, when, in which we're taught to, to bow down and worship the idol of self-esteem from a very young age. But we're called to be different. So revolt. Resist. Repent and believe what God's Word says. Believing what God's Word says will instill in you a courage like you will not believe. That's why Peter was able to stand with unwavering confidence before thousands of unrepentant Jews on Pentecost. It's why Stephen was able to stand with unwavering courage before this mob that was thirsty for his blood. It's why Paul was able to stand with unyielding conviction before the courts of Rome, proclaiming the grace of God through Christ Jesus. And it's why countless, countless Christian martyrs through the ages have been able to stand with unwavering faith before their murderers. It's because they believed what God's Word says. If you're going to be different in this culture, you must stand for Christ. And if you're going to stand for Christ, you've got to believe what God's Word says. And you must be continually willing to yield your ego and your desires whenever the Word of God confronts you. If, you don't, if, if you're not willing to yield, it's going to be a tough journey. And the courage won't quite be there. The desire to compromise will be so much more enticing. Count it as a great and fulfilling joy to be confronted and rebuked by the Word of God. And you will find the strength and the courage and the conviction 
to stand for Christ in a God-hating culture like the one that's growing by leaps and bounds around us every day. That's what kept Joseph grounded. That's what kept Joseph humble. So let's finish up this chapter looking at verses 53 to 57. It says, When the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph said, had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the, all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. And so surely enough, the, the seven years of abundance, the seven years of prosperity does come to an end. And famine falls upon not only all the land of Egypt, but all the earth. All the lands. Verse 54 tells us that throughout the land of Egypt, there was what? There was bread. No bread, no life, right? That's the food. That's what they had to eat was bread. Because they've been storing up all this grain, all this harvest. No bread, no life. And this was the condition everywhere you could possibly go. And the result is that the whole world had to come to Pharaoh who pointed people to Joseph to buy grain. Anyone who wanted to live had to come to Joseph. Joseph was God's chosen instrument of providing bread. Joseph was God's chosen vessel of providing salvation from certain death. Joseph had the bread, and bread meant life. But we must remember the words of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which were quoted by the Lord when he was tempted in the wilderness. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by what? Everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And that reminds us, that Joseph, while Pharaoh was pointing to Joseph, Joseph is pointing us to a greater Savior. Not to a Savior who has bread, but to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. If you do not come to Christ, you will not find eternal life. You will not find salvation. You won't find true everlasting life anywhere else but in Him. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He is the Savior of the world whom Joseph directed us to. And just as Joseph was exalted and the Egyptians were to bow down before him, so too the Lord Jesus Christ is now exalted. 
He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And one day, every single knee will bow before Him, either with your will or against your will. Do you want everlasting life or do you want death? If death is what you want, then just be like the world. It offers an all-you-can-eat death buffet every single day. But one day, if this is your choice, if you choose death, one day you must be warned that your knee will bow before Christ right before you enter into God's holy and righteous eternal judgment in a lake of fire. That is God's holy judgment against sin and all has sinned. But Christ offers us a better way. The Gospel offers us a better way. If you want to be forgiven, if you want to be washed clean from the stain of sin, if you want to be saved from the great calamity of God's judgment which is to come, if you want life, you must repent and believe in Christ Jesus who is the bread of life and who gave Himself as a ransom for many. He died on a cross. He was buried And He rose again on the third day to prove that His work of reconciliation, that His work of redemption was not only complete, but that it was acceptable to the Father. If He had not been raised, we would still be dead in our sins because Christ Himself would not have been an acceptable offering on our behalf. But the fact that He raised again proves to us that life is only found in Him. He ascended into heaven where He now reigns over the nations. All authority has been given to Him. Friends, the Gospel is good news because it offers us redemption, forgiveness, and eternal life but also because it gives us a treasure that is greater and sweeter and more long-lasting and more incorruptible than anything that this world has to offer. To be called to live for the glory of Christ as a child of God is the greatest privilege and is the greatest honor, is the highest title on earth. And so whatever your perspective is, whatever your circumstances may be, keep this perspective that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over everything in the universe and He is good and faithful unto His own. And so whatever your circumstances may be, whatever your portion in life may be, Understand that it is all a gift from God's hand. Every second. And if you'll adopt this perspective and cling to this perspective, no matter what your circumstances may be, you'll find a joy and a peace that that doesn't depend on your circumstances. And Christ will be glorified in your, your humility And the rare jewel of true peace and contentment in life will be yours as surely as it was Joseph's. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, 
we come before you recognizing that apart from your grace, apart from the Spirit working within us, we would only abide in death. We confess before you right now, Lord, in the silence of our hearts, that we are sinners. And that we would not even love or desire you if you had not loved us first. So we thank you for your grace. And we ask you for help, Lord. Because the temptations that we face in our nation are great and they are many. We have great freedoms and we thank you for those freedoms. And yet, freedom is something that we realize can be so easily abused. And so we need your forgiveness. We need your grace. Father, we do pray for our our leaders, our, our country's leaders, whether it's the president or local mayors, everything in between. Lord, without repentance, without grace working in their lives, we would be persecuted, and this country is doomed for destruction. And so we do lift up our leaders, Lord, and we ask that you would give them wisdom. We ask that you would reveal yourself to them, open the eyes of their heart so the glories of the gospel. But in all of life, Lord, teach us to trust in you. May our perspective be unchanged by our conditions and our circumstances. But may we learn to see in all of life that you are good, that you are sovereign, and you are so faithful. You are so worthy. Thank you for sending Christ, your Son, to die the death that we deserved so that we could have eternal life in him we pray that that would bear much fruit in our lives for the glory of christ amen this message has been brought to you by biblestudypodcast.org we are a listener supported ministry if this is your first time listening to us we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.